This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today's episode is one I didn't really think would happen, so I'm very happy to present it. There aren't a lot of hip-hop Christmas albums, and one of the best-remembered is also one of the most unlikely, Death Row Records' Christmas on Death Row from 1996. Death Row Records made a splash in 1993 with the release of Dr. Dre's The Chronic, and it and the next nine releases all went platinum for Snoop Dogg, The Dog Pound, Tupac, and more. The tenth release is Christmas on Death Row, which not only didn't go platinum, but it topped out at 155 on the Billboard Hot 200. So what happened? Maybe a lot of things, maybe one thing. In 1996, there were a lot of moving parts at Death Row. By the summer when recording started, Dr. Dre had left and Tupac had been killed. Two of the label's signature talents were gone and label owner Suge Knight was in jail by the Christmas season. That clearly changed the place of Death Row in the musical world, but the album itself sparked some questions. First, did the audience that wanted Tupac and Snoop also want Christmas songs? And second, would they buy a Death Row album that wasn't strictly hip-hop? There are only three or four rap tracks on the album that included one by Snoop, one by Dog Pound, and one by Nate Dogg. The rest of the album featured R&B versions of Christmas classics sung by the singers who sang hooks on the Death Row albums. People who could sing but weren't yet established as stars. Today, I'm talking to John Payne, JP, who helped found Death Row is currently guiding the label through its 30th anniversary. In the interview, we talk about some of the releases planned for this year to celebrate the label, including a number of cassette reissues of some of its classic albums. I'm also talking to vocalist Danny Boy, who signed as a singer to Death Row when he was 15. He sings three songs on the album, so we talk about those tracks and his experiences at Death Row during the label's heyday. Before we get to that, though, I have to give you some setup. When it came time for our interview, Danny Boy was finishing up a trip to Alabama where he was filming a cooking show. He participated in the Zoom on his phone while in a car on the way to the airport. Then, when he got to the airport, he continues as he travels through the airport, through ticketing, through TSA, and then hanging out while waiting for his flight. I'll tweak the sound and edit the sonic weirdness when I can, but since he's on the same track as JP, there are times where you're simply going to hear the sound of a guy going through the airport and the background noise accompanying it while JP is talking. One great moment for me came when he went through TSA and laid his phone on the conveyor belt, screen side up, as it went through the x-ray machine. I don't remember it making any particular noise, so I don't think you'll be able to tell when it happens, but I loved seeing his phone's camera's perspective and realizing what was happening when it went in. Before we get to it, I want to go to another one of my Christmas favorites. Today, I want to go to 2005 for the Away Team remix of Lou Rawls' Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Capitol Records has a massive library of Christmas classics and it has not been shy about repackaging that material for the holidays. When I talked to Brad Ross McLeod of fa-la-la-la-la.com, I think I have an extra law in there, we talked about the Ultra Lounge Christmas Cocktails album as one that got him interested in revisiting Christmas music. And that, and the two subsequent releases, also under the name Christmas Cocktails, volumes two and three, were on Capitol. I had to remind myself that I have just about everything on them when I saw two vinyl A Capital Christmas collections because they look beautiful and they're great compilations. They're just not compilations I need. In 2005, when remixing was an unavoidable fact of life, Capital released Merry Mixmas, Christmas Classics Remixed. And the label put credible producers to work remixing classics from their vaults. Bean Crosby, Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Lena Horne, June Christie, Vince Guaraldi Trio, and more are all remixed, presumably to help the classics reach a new generation. I doubt it worked, but not because the versions are weak or cynical. More likely, the primary audience for DJ-centered music doesn't really want to hear Billy May, K-Star, Eartha Kitt, or Ella Fitzgerald. 
But whether the songs reach their intended audiences or not, there's a lot there to like. I like Q Burns' Abstract Messages hip-hop-oriented remix of Johnny Mercer's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And Ursula 1000 adds a few neon cocktails to Julie London's version of I'd Like You for Christmas. My favorite is Lou Rawls' version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, remixed by British DJ Ian Davenport under the name Away Team. First, Lou Rawls' Christmas songs are almost bulletproof and make me want to hear more by him. I grew up with him as a kind of generic celebrity on television variety shows, and because we shared the same last name, other kids and some adults as time passed couldn't resist asking if we were related. But there's an easy, convincing warmth in his delivery. I'm in for whatever he's selling, and I love the way Away Team starts the song as if someone's tuning a radio dial, finding the song and fiddling with it until the song is clearly audible. That treatment makes the song sound like a found moment instead of a predetermined destination, which gives it an undercurrent of magic. And I love the way the radio noise paired with Rawls' song from 1967 evokes nostalgia while the drum programming marks the song as clearly contemporary. That combination gives the song an emotional dimension few other tracks on the album have. So although I like a lot of Merry Mixmas, this version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is the song on it I return to. We'll hear a little bit of the original version, then the Away Team remix, then we'll be back on the other side with John Payne, Danny Boy, and Christmas on Death Row. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now Y'all tell me for the listeners first off who I'm, who each one of you are, and how you got started at Death Row. I'll go first, and I'll pass it to Danny Boy. My name okay. is John. They call me JP. I was uh, with Death Row's inception from the uh, the very beginning. We did. I was part of the deep co- people that did deep cover, all the way. Through. I actually left right before Danny Boy came on board, and then also uh, back. Um, in the late 2000s, I was one of the people oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and bought Death Row and started fixing it, putting it back on its feet to the point now I'm actually a consultant to Death Row because I have long, long ties. So I go back to Death Row hey, when it was Future Shock. But then Future Shock and, you know, putting everybody together oh, from the Grammy parties to uh, getting all the artists signed. So I was basically getting like a GM. I ran the day-to-day the studio and I actually had the most knowledge uh, of anyone in the business. I think that was to our advantage that they had less knowledge than me because that means when they were doing the songs, they didn't worry about what the so-called rules were. And this is why the songs and uh, everything came out so great. So when they all got together to write a song and put together, they didn't know that, you know, maybe the way the industry went, they probably would want to hear this. Well, I'm old school, so creativity is creativity. So that's how things happen and things occur. That's how you got Snoop. That's how you got Dre and Das, Corrupt, Robin, Reigns, Danny Boy. That's why they could come in and do things their own way because by the time, also by the time Danny Boy came in, they're established. And so he could just come out there, the young, the youngster, mm-hmm. get out there and let it flow. Right. So on that note, I'm going to pass over to Danny Boy and we can just keep bouncing up as you need. Perfect. Well, I came to Death Row Records uh, from Chicago, from the west side of Chicago, to another independent company. My name's Danny Boy, for those that don't know me. 
Um, and I signed a death row at a, at a young age, at the age of 15 years old. Uh, I came out there and as he said, they were already established. I was just a little church boy that wanted to be a part of the music industry. Really didn't know what I was becoming a part of. And when I called back to the crib and told everybody that I was out there working with artists such as Snoop Dogg and around Dr. Dre, uh, uh, around, Dr. Uh, around uh, Dr. Dre and all those guys, it was just something very exciting. So I was there at a young age, like John Payne said. So tell me about being about being a teenager and walking into the middle of that scene. Oh, wow. Let me tell you something. That was incredible because, you know, if anybody know the 90s at that time, Death Row was really was really like the Motown of the 90s. You know what I mean? It was like, wow. Uh, and I, again, I didn't understand exactly what I was around, but I knew I was around something powerful and big just because of the money that was being spent, the video sets and the video things that we were doing around the label. So it was really exciting to be 15 years old and around uh, Suge Knight and those guys that was kind of really running the music business at that time. What did it feel? You know, like I, you know, from the outside, Death Row was sort of, you know, always felt like a sense sort of a, there's a lot of, a lot of controversy around it. Did you feel it when you were in it? Oh, hell yeah. Was it controversy? <laughs> It was, a, it was, a, it, he has my idea. I'm sorry. It was, it was around, it was, a, it was controversy daily. Like, you know, anytime you was around them on the West Coast, you know what I mean? Uh, especially the kind of guys that Suge had around him. Like, it was always controversy, especially me coming from church. Especially me coming. I want to, I want to, come, when you talk about the death row controversy, I've been in this business. I work with everyone from country western to rock to heavy metal. The stuff that occurred. But the death row, if you put it on a scale to the stuff that they were doing in the 80s, was small. You know, people are driving off cliffs, wrecking cars, but death okay. row being an so, urban country, a company, people would see it and it's like, oh, it's a lot worse. Oh, it wasn't a lot, but since the spotlight was so much, it was easier to point the finger at them and say, look, this is happening over there. When it, it was, like I said, by comparison, it wasn't a lot, but it was it was noted because they were so they were so famous. Like during the eighties, I had you know a lot of those rock stars who I do personally, and I know that I've seen him a few hours ago, and he just drove off a cliff. Right. <laughs> you know, and just like, but this is like constant. You know, the drummers that have you know driven up, and now they got one arm and one leg as they're playing. So Death Row was notorious, but it wasn't as bad as people made it out to be. So that was and the thing is, is that's what people always push for the negativity. You look at the reason why Death Row is still around is because of the talent of the people. Anytime you put on a death row song, people don't think about who got shot. They think about, oh, this is my song. Yes, no doubt. That's what they think about. Okay, no so it's a, it's, it's a big, when I travel the world, I'm in places, you're in the club, a death row song come on, you will get on the dance floor. Over the holidays, there were some events that, that went on and I would see kids, young kids, but ladies, six years old, can I have one of those death row hoodies? Yeah, she's coming upstairs. Right. You know, so again, it, it was, it was again, my thing is I, this is why we're doing these things. I want people to understand the part of the legacy, the, the foundation, you know, but without Danny Boy and Rage and Jewel, Das Corrupt, the foundation of bricks. This is what David is saying. It would have still been good, but this is what David is saying. And again, like you said, like, you know, you're interviewing us, had Death Row just been notoriously in a negative way, you didn't even want to talk to right. us. Yep. We're talking about a death row, we're gonna be talking about a death row Christmas yeah. record. Right. right. And let me and let me make and let me make sure that I make it clear too, even that controversy, it was probably because of only the music that was being released at that time, how hard they was going against hip hop. But you know, Death Row at that time was making incredible hits, incredible songs. I think I came around a time where the love was in the music still. With the fans, we were able to touch the fans. It was nothing like seeing those guys, seeing Suge and everybody that was working on the team, working towards one common goal, and that was putting out hit after hit after hit and enjoying times in the studio. So the 90s and the early 90s, it was incredible. It was great. One, two, three. 
bringing to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the dope. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Too low depth, nigga, so we're crazy. Death Row is the label that pays, man. Unfadeable, so please don't try to fake this. Hell but yeah. uh, back to the lecture at hand. You know, one of the reasons I asked this question, my own perspective was that to a great degree, you know, hip hop was still in many ways so new that as a commercial force, I mean, that you obviously you had a lot of radio was still slow to touch it. And that basically death row particularly was became so big radio couldn't avoid it. But up to that point, almost everything that hip-hop did was brand new. And because it was brand new, it also became a point of controversy. And then when you also attach to that larger-than-life personalities, you end up with something that becomes a lot of sort of easy controversy. But the bottom line is that, to my mind, a lot of it happened because Death Row was so successful and because the world was still just coming to grips with hip-hop. There's that, but also, too, when you break it down to the artists and the individual, they were part of their environment. So when they're seeing and interact about something, this is what they saw every day. You were trying to take advantage of that fact, but this is what they saw. This is what they experienced. So when they're saying this, if they weren't trying to do that to be hip and say, look at us, this is what we grew up in. This is where we go every day. Some people, when we first started Death Row, a lot of people from Compton and Long Beach, our, the studio was in Hollywood. When we had the functions, it was some of them their first time being in Hollywood, which wow. is... 15 miles away. Right. So when you're looking at Death Run and Talk, at that time, you know, you got gangs, you got all this stuff. This is what they knew. They weren't, they weren't like glorifying and trying to be great, but this way, no. So it was more casual conversation, but this is their, their reference so they could make it so you could understand it. Right. You know, it was glorifying it, but it's like, this is where we're from. Right. You know, if, if, if they were, I'll be honest, if they were all from Beverly Hills, the songs would have been a lot worse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We had a dinner party tonight. We had a dinner party tonight at Molly's house. You're like, no, no. <laughs> you know, but I, I really, I really do. I wish I could have seen Death Row through Danny Boy's eyes, being that kid and everything singing up and going there. It had to be. And then, and then, no, I got to ask you a question, Danny Boy. What was it like the first time you heard one of those releases? You're in a car in a in a mall or something. You hear your voice. Not in the studio, but out. Oh my God, man! That was that was the most amazing feeling in the world to hear myself on a, on a song. First off, not just on the radio. I think the first record that I was able to hear myself released on was the Murder Was the Case. Uh, the Murder Was the Case compilation of uh, the, the soundtrack. And and oh man, my mother, my mother was the church's nurse. Like she was the pastor's nurse. When that record came out, my mother had that record on her on her arm, um, walking through church. Showing everybody that record, like so, that was the most enjoyable thing for me to have an opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, to have an opportunity to um, to be a part of something like that, man. What nothing more incredible than that? And then when I heard myself on the radio, I knew I was with the right people. <laughs> next question: When the next when you were out and people said it's Danny Boy, what was that like? That first oh, time wow, you recognized. Wow! When I went back to the crib. And you know, especially being a young age, I would go to high schools, man, and they would chase me through high schools. And you know, I had security with me, having security around me, having to have detail with me every day, and then just run through a high school, man, and have half of the school just chasing you. That was a moment to live for. That was a moment to live for. And then at that time, that's when people was really into records. They were really into artists. They were really into supporting artists. And really wasn't worried about, even though people had built this big thing around Death Row, being worried about concerts and things like that. And then people was loving on us when they seen us. Because when the music came on, everything else went away. Oh, it healed everything else. Oh, everything no doubt. Went away. As soon as that, Man, first, note, that first note hit your ear, you, you would know what the song was. Yeah. When oh. Jen and Juice came on, man, that settled everything. When <laughs> you know records like that, when that, when as soon as it hit. As soon as Nate Dogg them hit on the radio, that settled everything in every when, city that I went to. When we did the deep cover soundtrack, and the first time people heard Snoop say 187 on the undercover cop, all codes went, oh. I mean, they were like, oh, man. That was the introduction of Death Row. 
but wow. hearing that because it was from a whole nother place, but people could relate because you know the different coasts were all from the hood and from different places, but that wow that just like oh man, and then getting into the crime and everything else just kept getting better and expanding, expanding. Yes, sir. That row, that row was never one dimensional because you had such diverse talent that you could sprinkle anybody in anywhere to give it that little extra. Right. Yep. So take it over. But anyway, yep. I'm, I'm sorry. This is your interview, please. No, no, <laughs> no, no. It's fine. I love it. It makes my life easier. So, <laughs> how did the idea of a Christmas album come about, Danny Boy? Well, I remember uh, Suge talking about it. Uh, like we were talking about it early on. We were working on other records. And it was just going around. The holidays was coming up. It was going around to do a Christmas record. And I actually remember he and I going to meet with Michael Jackson. Really? So that, uh, yes. Um, you know, he had been telling me, Sugar would always say certain things like, oh, man, yeah, we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. And it would sound unbelievable until you seen him pull it off. And he was like, yeah, we're going to make sure Mike get on this song. Which, and, uh, duh, 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 duh. and I knew that he knew the Jacksons, you know, out of going to meet with them. Uh, but we went to a restaurant and we sat down and we there and lo and behold, Michael Jackson came in. <laughs> and you got this Suge, you got Suge smoking this thing or talking to Mike about cutting this record with me. And I'm sitting there like, you know, Suge had this thing where you really couldn't act like uh, when you've seen other celebrities or anything like that. You had to kind of act right. You, had to, you know, you had to, you, had to, you couldn't... Uh, Drivers, I'm sorry, I'm walking through security. Sure. You had to act like you had to act like you were on their level. Sure. You had to act like you were on their level. And uh, but I was excited. Who wouldn't have been excited to meet somebody like Michael Jackson? So after that meeting, it really started going into play, even though a lot of political things started to happen, podcast around that time. Um, I had just passed around that time. We were in uh, he decided for us to go to the Bahamas. Uh, to cut the records to Compass Point. Oh, really? Yeah. So he flew a lot of musicians, uh, a writing team, and Roger Trotman and his brother. We all flew over to Compass Point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so y'all were so you were so Roger Trotman was a part of the of the album as well. Roger Trotman did. Uh, Roger Trotman cut a lot of the records uh, uh, on some of those Christmas records, and as we were working on Christmas songs. You know, we would do other things, but our common goal down there was to cut the Christmas out. Right. This was more of an R&B gospel feel as opposed to that. So, because when you look at the people that are on it and where they're the singers, this was, you know, this, I mean, Death Row was very versatile. There was a whole lot going on, which people never realized. But this was one, because if, if they did, I mean, even though it, you know, it had the, the street edge to it, the compositions, the music and all that stuff was, was very much composed uh, by producers that know, that do, uh, like I said, R&B or gospel, so that. Gave it that whole thing, which which shows which shows the the versatility of Death Row and just what they were capable of, and it also showed you know when people would hear Danny Boy singing a hook, but then they hear him singing a Christmas song. Right, you get you know you get even more idea of his talent and right. the talent of the other the other people that were on it. So, quite honestly, if you hadn't put the word you know if it didn't say Death Row, you heard the first thing when you first hear it, you wouldn't think it was Death Row. 
No. And, I, and then they listen to the lyrics and go, oh, yeah, that might be that place. I'm going, <laughs> through, I'm going through security right now, guys, okay? I'm going through security at the airport. Right. Okay. Okay. So we'll continue till yeah. he comes back. So I, I actually was about to sort of ask this question. Was it a deliberate effort to kind of focus a little more attention on the R&B side of Death Row? Well, I, I believe so, excuse me, because a lot of the producers came from that type of background, from R&B or gospel and things like that, too. So, And it being a, a holiday album, and there, you know, there's an integrity to this, you know, even though they could make it, like I said, they can make it a little more urban and like that, but they felt good about being able to do it their way and do it the correct way. So it still got across. It still, it, you know, it worked really well. So again, it was, um, it was, it was wise choices all the way across. And then, you know, Shug taking everybody to conference point. I know that studio very well, get them away from everything. And you're on a beach. Yeah. Really yes. Nice on a beach. I worked at, oh. I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an engineer as well. I've done a lot of mixing that studio space, but being there, and it's not Christmas time either. You still you yeah. gotta get in the in yeah. the headspace. You know, yeah. kind of hard looking at the waves and it's you know 90 degrees. It's like, oh Merry Christmas. Do you remember uh what month this was recorded in? Uh we were recording somewhere around, let me see, podcast in September. Uh let me see, September. Somewhere in like September it was early after Pox. Pox's death that we decided, you know, so much going on. Okay. That we decided to get away. Okay. And ha- had Suge gone to prison yet? No, actually, while we were recording the records, while we were recording, um, I was uh, I was actually in, a, in at Compass Point. There's like a compound where artists stay on. And uh, I was in the room sleeping. They came and they said that uh, Suge had a warrant out for his arrest uh, back in the States. And probably an hour later, uh, the Bahamian police came and they escorted us off of the island. Wow. Like, we had to leave immediately. So was Suge Suge at Compass Point with you? He was there a long time, man. He had a house house there and uh, we also had had the cabanas as well. Oh, okay. Is that the Black Santa Claus? I want a Super Nintendo. Sega Genesis. Street Fighter 2. Christmas Eve, I'm out with the gangsters and thieves. Celebrated, posted up with eggnog, hand it up in my cup. Put Rudolph and Moses, Lil Bang Bang, and coasting down the block. But be careful for the heart because it's posted. Some say to this day that Christmas ain't nothing but another day. But out of respect, I gotta give the Lord his day. Tell me, tell me, where do the homeless and bums got to sleep? Where do the hungry and the needy greedies got to eat? Life is so crucially cold. That's for, for the children in this world. They hopes and dreams can't afford. The young get old churches and spiritual dreams, seasonal things. Heard throughout the ghetto reaches gangsters and dope things. Uh, Cause those who ain't able to get it, I can finally get it. Cause the ghetto Santa Claus sprinkled the hood. Now we born and live into a new year. A better thing, celebrate with some champagne. Ha ha, check it. Santa Claus. At that, up to that point, everything that every album that uh, Death Row released had gone platinum, uh, at least platinum. Yeah. What was it like to to be to record at a point when you're on a label that has had just nothing but massive success? Oh wow! I think that's. Um... I think that's what made the reality of the other stuff that went on uh, seem so unreal because Death Row was running things for so long musically and uh, because of the growth. You know, even when I came there, it was already established, but to be there and watch, as you said, these were every record that came out was, was a go. Every video that came out was a go. You know what I mean? And now we're being invited to all these award shows and different things like that. You couldn't have asked for anything else. 
And to have so many odds against you, such as, you know, they wasn't going for Dolores C. Tucker. That thing was a serious thing. Yeah. A serious thing. They didn't want those records out. They didn't want those records on the radio. But, you know, still, we were still hitting the road and still hitting the studio. And see those guys work, man. That's where I learned. You know what I mean? I learned my my uh, work ethic being in the studio from being around those guys. Them dudes was ready in the studio daily. I think also, too, what it provided, too, was uh, a healthy competition. Because the fact that the people being successful and you see that you get in the studio with somebody without any negativity. I'm going to do better than yeah. he did. I'm going to do this. Yes. This time, this time is me. This time, you know, so not like yes. let's find a way to derail or because I, I know this too. When I wasn't into that period, I just so being working with a lot of people, also knowing all the guys. Well, I know at some point they might be in the studio and somebody would come in, one of the other artists, and go, Look, I got a line for you. I got this. Let me right. have that kind of thing as opposed to that. I leave them to know. I'm like, I got this. Can I get on this? Right. Yes. You yes. Know? That's the that's what this atmosphere. So when people look at it, like, when you look at you know, there's controversy going on, but when you look inside, when it came to the music, that's what that's what saved everybody. Yes, it that, is. You know, what little sanity that they all have. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what made it. Because to this to this day, and I, I'm speaking for everybody, they they, they could never say nothing bad about the music, what they did, what the audience felt. That the music takes you away from everything. Yes, sir. You get there and it's like you feel it. It's just, just, but that's what it's supposed to do. The music is not supposed to make you think, oh shit. It makes you think, oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But that's what it's supposed to do. So, were you aware? Did it start to, you know, while while this is all happening, obviously, that Tupac has just been shot and while this is going on, there's a warrant out for uh, for Shug's arrest. Did, did y'all have a have a feeling at all that things were changing? Oh man, was it changing? You could you didn't know how bad it was changing, but just just losing Pac was was such a great change for us. Uh, you know, even in the short time that he was there, uh, it still built uh, just to be in that studio and to see Pac give everybody an opportunity. Um, that he did. It didn't matter who you were. If you was an artist on death row and you was in that studio, it was artists that was like OFTB that was from Watts and myself, Danny Boy from Chicago that you never heard of. And every time that he got in that studio, if there was something that he thought you fit on, he gave you that opportunity. Right. So, you know, things things changed drastically. And after his death, you know, you can kind of, it, it kind of seemed, you know, that was really the demise of death row, a lot of things uh, start coming against us. You know, people were mad, you know, uh, and people was at Shug, so that's the demise, I think, sure. we began after that. Sure. But, but at the point when you were recording this album, it, it hadn't started to sink in, is this right? Or oh, was no. It just no, none of the records, none of them. You wouldn't have never thought the records that Christmas album or, you know, uh, or even Pac out. Nobody, nobody cared, we in the studio, we just working. You would have never thought that it would have grown to what it did. Another world, it's just yeah, yeah. We just were all kids doing what we love doing. Sure, but what I mean was, you, but yes. So you were saying, so you're in the studio even when you were working on the Christmas record. There wasn't any sense when you were actually doing the work that things were nah. starting to come apart. No nah, man, nah, not at all. all right. I, you know that's what I think. It was Christmas time, you know, it was, and that was actually one of our my favorite times being around the record company, you know. Um, it was Christmas time. We was cutting these albums. It wasn't like your normal Christmas album. Yeah, I did the, the the Christmas song and I did the peaceful Christmas and things like that. But again, you heard records on there like hip hop Christmas cuts right. that had really never heard of before. Sure, you know you, we were ready for the patience, but we weren't ready to hear no Snoop Dogg rap about rap about no no Christmas. Uh, the Dog Pound put out a record about Christmas. Right, right. So that was that man, that was crazy, crazy moment. Was there ever any talk of, I mean, besides, I mean, Snoop and Dog Pound and Nate Dogg are on, but in terms of, but many of the other signature voices weren't a part of this. Was there, you know, was it hard to sell other people on the idea of doing a, uh, being a part of a Christmas record? Some of the rappers. Um, 
I, I, I don't think it was hard. I just think, I think um, at that time, Suge had an idea, or the guys that was putting the records together had an idea of who all they wanted on it. Okay. wasn't a lot of cuts. wasn't a lot of cuts on the record, True. and uh, and it, it and it was done again at last minute. Right. We cut the record, like I said, September maybe. Right. Remember, these were these were all true singers. This is no sure. disrespect to anybody else, but these were all sure. singers that could, yeah. that, that could sing the song, that could sing the lyrics, could sing the, the hooks. This was different. And also, when you say you're working a bit of time, so it's I a know. different headspace. But also, too, like I said, it's it shows the versatility of Death Row that they can reach into the talent bag and put this out there. Right. That the oh, yeah. about this. And it was supposed yeah. to really be a big and like you said, for R&B from Death Row. Right. You know what I mean? It was really introducing artists like Jewel and all everybody. It, that was when that you, moment. Sure. When you look at what's in the vault, the different songs, there's R&B, there's gospel, there's all kind of stuff. So yes. there's a lot of stuff going on. Danny Boy has a lot of different stuff in the vault, too. <laughs> it shows the yes. Unfortunately, at a, you know, Death Row was sort of one-dimensional at, at that point, you know, when things fell off, so they weren't able to expand. Right. You know, they're coming out of all of the uh, different uh, urban-based stuff, but they they were ready. They were they were gearing up for it because the music in the vault shows. Got it. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Danny Boy, earlier on, you you talked about uh, having a, a lunch with Michael Jackson. How did that story end? Because I I don't hear him on the record. How did uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what happened so uh, to talked, that? We talked about it. We uh we, we talked about it a little. Uh, and again, it was a great meeting, and it never happened. It was it, it went on and saying this to make it happen, and they talked about it. Uh, Mike said he's going to be on it, but it never happened, as you can sure. see. Okay. That would have been one of the dopest things in the world, though, to have Michael Jackson on a death row record. <laughs> oh, oh, I got to say, what, that that would have been a mind blower for America. Yes. Not a question. Um, yes. One of the things I want to talk to you about is it occurred to me, two songs that you sing on the album are Christmas Song and uh, This Christmas, which, yes. I, which I find fascinating because there are two Christmas songs who that are first and most importantly associated with black artists. With yeah. Nat King Cole and Donny Hathaway, and Hathaway. Uh-huh. tell me about tell me about singing those songs and how to the degree that any of that actually weighed on you or you thought about that while you were doing those performances. Well, you know, as you said, like uh, those two songs is like a staple in uh, our home. You know what I mean? Not just just the black community. I could say us, but for sure. And when Christmas, the holiday home, it, it, in holiday homes, it like that song. This Christmas, it you know it's Christmas time when you hear chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You know that it's Christmas time everywhere. And to sing a song that Donny Hathaway, because I'm so inspired by him, to do a song that he did was was you know like that was a no brainer to do those type of songs. And and really at that time that was probably the only two Christmas songs that I knew. <laughs> <laughs> so and tell me about Peaceful Christmas uh, because yes. it is. I mean, you can tell me to to the extent there was a concept. I mean, it felt very much like yeah. the hip hop songs kind of set the table and connected the Christmas record to you know to the mm-hmm. death row world. But at the same time, the R and B songs felt like these are the songs that you would hear in these people's houses at Christmas. Yes. Well, you know, for, for me, peaceful Christmas being from. You know, being from the hood, the west side of Chicago and, you know, where, where I was raised, um, that song was really fun writing 
for me because, you know, just what it says, you know, I'm dreaming of a peaceful Christmas this year. It was so much going on, so much going on around us. Then, you know, it, it, it was bells don't jingle no more. White snow don't fall in the ghetto. You know, it seems as if it's the joy that I miss. Santa don't love me no more. Like that was like really telling the story of what we were going through around that time. I had recently lost my mother. Even in the midst of cutting this record, I hadn't lost my mother. Um, two, two, it was like maybe six, seven months before that my mother had passed. So those records meant a lot. This was my first Christmas without my mother. And, and we were going through things. Pop just got murdered. So it was a lot going on. And that was a song that just kind of was laid on my heart. Was there a level at which that song was also in some way to bridge the R&B songs and the more traditional death row, you know, lyrical su subject matter? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because, you know, to be honest, you know, Suge wanted to get into the R&B side. I rode with him every day. He wanted to do the R&B thing, but he knew, you know, you know, you know, this death row, so you're going to have to switch it up a little bit. And it was a little challenging for me. But again, to be around these dudes, man, to see their magic, I picked up some things from those dudes. And I was like, man, you just going to have to do it. It's going to have to be something beyond Chestnuts and something beyond the Christmas song. It had to be something beyond that. And that's what gave me kind of like that hip hop edge. By this time, I was damn near ready to rap. This song is dedicated to the struggling people. Your past Christmas probably messed up, but I'm praying that you have a better Christmas this year. From ghetto to ghetto, All around the world, Chicago to LA, LA to Atlanta. You know what I'm talking about. Bells don't jingle no more. White snow don't fall in the ghetto. It seems as if it's the joy that I miss. Santa don't know me no more. And it feels like I've been so bad. The joy that the families had. So, this foggy Christmas day. Why can't we live in peace, y'all? Should I change from living mountains? Please let Was there ever any thought uh, that as you were making an R&B record with a clear R&B sound, was there any concern that this might sound too different from the other Death Row records? I mean, because it doesn't have the same kind of G-Funk sound, uh, you know, that was a big part of a lot of the other Death Row uh, records. Was that a concern at all? I don't, I don't think that was seen as a concern at all. I think... By that time, they had heard so much music from Death Row Records, and and um, everybody was on such one accord, man. I, I don't think that was a problem at all. Also, I think they were also, ready. Good music is good music, but when you listen That's to right. the Above the Rim soundtrack, they had all kind of stuff going on, too. So that shows uh, the kind of stuff, yeah. about that as well. So you you knew what they were capable of, you who they are capable of pulling in, because there's a lot of people that weren't on the label that sang on that, that did songs on that. But this was, it, it wasn't like, Death Row, like it's gonna be like this. It was, it was talented people, going the way they do. Danny Boy's mm -hmm. a singer, sure. You know, so it made it made perfect sense. It's a good way to to remind the people. Yeah. You know, when I think I and I and I go back to the peaceful Christmas, I think that was also probably extremely therapeutic for wow. Danny, as well as a way to you know like cry. Yes, sir. Sing, in essence, sure. Now, I'm gonna flash forward here to pick up kind of where we are today. And, you know, obviously Death Row has now been through a lot of changes. And this year is Death Row. This is 30th anniversary, right, of Death Row? That's right. Yes. All right. And so I know y'all have a, year's, a, a year of sort of activities planned. Can you tell me about some of the things that you're doing now to sort of uh, to, 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 to celebrate it? 
the most important thing is celebrating and honoring the artist. So they're the legacy. So we're going to be reaching the vault and pulling things out, but we're going to have different things going on to remind people who they are, what they've done, and that they're not gone. You know, there's, there's, there's more to it than this, too. So a lot of these artists, too, have kids, some have grandkids that have never seen this. So we're, you know, their place in history. Uh, we're setting up uh, our website. Yeah. is called uh, Death Row Official. We're going to have a legacy room a museum in there where we're going to get a lot of photos, a lot of stuff. We're going to actually have the artists come on and maybe pass some wisdom off or maybe do something with one of their kids. But the, the, to me, more so than anything, it's an anniversary. It's got to be about the people, the music. Wow. That's what's most important. That's why Danny Boy is on here. You know, I, I, we don't have to remind you who he is, but when he went, just like talking to me, starts singing, you remember. So we want to spread that out as far and wide anything. I'm more concerned with the legacy artists than, you know, the Death Row is the name of the company, but I want people to know Danny Boy, Jewel, Sam Sneed, Jay Black, Rage. I, I want them because once you hear their voice, you know who they are. Right. So let's, this is what built, this is the foundation. These are the bricks and the wall of Death Row. Right. So that's what's most, that's what was most important with all the stuff we had planned and all this stuff. Like I said, the site, that's what official is going to be highlighting a lot. We got different things planned from pulling songs out of the vault to a lot of things to really pay tribute to this. Sure. Yeah. To this label. Yeah. I, I saw that you already have really reissued uh, a handful of records on cassette. And I know you have, I think, I think I saw you have the uh, above the rim soundtrack coming out on national on record. We, are, Day. we have uh, all of all of the materials are going to be coming out on cassette. Uh, we're still adding more. I'm still mastering stuff, vinyl, CDs, as well as the uh, streaming. I'm updating everything and making sure it's all out. I mean, I want the artist music to be heard, but also too in the process too of making sure that they're going to get paid. I'm trying to address today forward. It's right. their legacy, man. I don't want to see somebody driving around in a car and they're trying to pay rent. Right. Danny Boy's phone cut off. He just texted me. So. All right. Oh, we saw he was in the airport. Yeah. So I'm yeah. glad we had him when we did. Yeah, I, I realized where we were, and I thought it's time to jump forward and go ahead. But yeah. So, so. But, but again, like I said, it's really about the history. We are going to be doing something on the Christmas record, too. We're oh, really going to be a big someone feature around that, too, as well. So this is also a good lead-in as well. But as I said, and I keep repeating myself, we want to, you know, just to honor the legacy of this, these artists. No matter what was going on, they still put out good records. When they took the stage, they still gave you a show. Yeah. Throughout my life as a child, my mama covered me with blessings, taking God for another year, bringing love in the presence. But who cares about us homeless people? God do. Don't be stingy, give a little, cause he loves you. It's been a long time coming, you say, for this day, fulfilling the dreams as a kid for the Christmas that I never enjoyed it live. Spread love to my own boys locked down in the pen. Spread love to my homies that passed that I'm gonna see again. Enemies and friends, it's Christmas, let's join hands. Every woman, every man across every land. What's the solution for your not seven resolution? Is it love? I hate times running out, homie. You I'm in the middle, in the rapture, in the mixture. Clear as daylight, it's painted clearer than a picture. I gained my focus like a lens. I start visioning all my friends, mansions, and ends. Now, when I was 18, it was seen. Thoughts of a team wouldn't prevail, but I'm thinking, oh well, that's life. And I'm a Thanks to JP and Danny Boy for the time and the talk. You can find Christmas on Death Row online, and Payne says it will be reissued later in the year as part of Death Row's 30th anniversary. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you want to let me know what you're thinking about, you can reach me at 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook or alex at myspiltmilk.com. If you haven't already done so, subscribe, follow, or do what you need to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. Earlier, I played a track from the 2005 album Merry Mixmas, so let's go back there one more time. This is the Marcus Enochson remix of Christmas Time is Here, which gives me a little Trans Europe Express 
and an odd sped up version of Vince Guaraldi's signature melody. You'll see. Talk to you next week.